We have two bars, a fly shop, and a post office, and that's what we have in Melrose. All of these tourists and fishermen coming in really have a positive impact on the overall economic viability of that town. One of the great things about this is we're all from different backgrounds, but the end goal is the same, to protect this river, to protect the fish. If we don't take steps as a group, as anglers, as fishermen, as guides, to step up and be a part of that, we're missing an opportunity to protect this resource. I think it's an education thing so each entity can understand each other, that we're all in this together. Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast, the Life in the Land series, where we hear from folks that live and work within the landscapes of Montana, gaining perspectives that can be applied globally on the realistic challenges, successes, and what is needed to move forward in a positive relationship with the land and one another in an ever-changing world. These are the interviews from the film series Life in the Land, in their entirety. I'm your host, Laura Tomov. In this episode of the Life in the Land series, we are still in the Big Hole Valley in southwest Montana. We're hearing from those involved in the Big Hole Watershed Committee, which is an organization that brings together the voices of local fishing guides, scientists, government agencies, ranchers, and so much more to collaboratively steward the entirety of the Big Hole Watershed. Everything from stream restoration to headgate repairs to supporting work that has successfully kept the Arctic grayling off of the endangered species list. Today we hear from Eric Thorson, owner of the Sunrise Fly Shop and Fly Fishing Guide Service in Melrose, Montana, as well as Liz Jones, a rancher in Wise River, who are both active in the Big Hole Watershed Committee. First we spoke with Eric. This was last September on the banks of the Big Hole River at the tail end of what was a stressful summer for everyone in the watershed due to record droughts, high temperatures, and area wildfires that blanketed the valley in smoke from early July to late September. Eric shares with us about what this year has meant for his business and the fishery, how he views the role of anglers as stewards of the rivers and a key economic driver for the valley. He also shares the urgency in working together for the betterment of a place as special as the Big Hole Valley. There's really nothing better than for me going out in the spring you can see a system moving in, you might get some snow, but the river's high and it's as full as it's gonna be all year. And we launched the boat and just those first few minutes of just looking up into the mountains, looking up to the Pentlers or the Pioneers, depending on where I am. And just having that moment of just the first couple oar strokes, watching the first couple casts, it's pretty phenomenal. We're on the Big Hole River. It's unique in the fact that it's a freestone river, so there's no dam. It flows from above Jackson, Montana, all the way down to Twin Bridges, Montana. Very little development, very rural, small towns. The river flows from somewhere around seven, 8,000 cubic feet per second in May, all the way down to 150 cubic feet per second here in September. It's very dynamic, it's beautiful. The fishery itself is spectacular. We're really unique in the fact that we're one of the last places that still has Arctic grayling. And we have the last native population in the lower 48. Along with browns, rainbows, brook trout, cutthroat, whitefish. I mean, it's an amazing fishery and it's a very special place. People come from all over the world to fish here. And our client base is everywhere from Italy, UK, 
East Coast, West Coast, Middle America, everywhere. And they travel here specifically to fish this resource. I own a fly shop in Melrose, Montana, the Sunrise Fly Shop. Uh, we started 16 years ago and it's a small little destination shop, but we have, realistically, we have thousands of people come fish with us. We do seven, 800 trips a year, two people per boat. And these people travel from all over the world to come fish this resource and have an experience on this river that's unlike anything else. Whereas you go to some places like the Madison or the Missouri where you have lots of houses, lots of development, the Yellowstone. And here we don't have that. You float down the river, rarely do you see a home, rarely do you see a road. And it's just a really special, unique experience. This river is so unique in the fact that it has three distinctly different sections. The upper river, which is kind of flat and meandering, a lot of conifers. You come to the middle section, which is the canyon section, and you have large canyon walls, much steeper gradient, faster moving water. And then you get down to the lower river, and it, again, braids up a lot more of the con um, cottonwoods that you would see. And they can fish three different sections and feel like they're on three different rivers, three different parts of Montana, and it's all the same place. Eric shares with me just how key the fly fishing economy is for the Big Hole Valley and the connections that those visitors can have to this place. In this rural area, there's really two forms of economy and there's the agriculture and the tourism. And the tourism is really based in fly fishing around here. And we have a lot of people come to this area and they come to fish and they spend money in fly shops or on guide trips. And then they're also spending money at hotels and restaurants and gas stations and all these different places. So all this money coming in is a lot of it has to do with the resource that we have here and the fishing and the trout population and this unbelievable river. Being a fly shop owner in, in Melrose is really a special experience because we see a lot of people come in and they come and spread the money that they come to spend all throughout this small town of under 100 people and these people are embraced by the locals. They have this great connection with the area, the town, and it's not just about the river. It's about coming in and having this experience and saying how much they love coming back to Melrose and coming back and being a part of this really unique and special place that we don't see a lot of in America anymore. There's very few people. We have two bars, a fly shop, and a post office, and that's what we have in Melrose. And all of these tourists and fishermen coming in really have a positive impact on the overall economic viability of that town. And tell me about that tie of fly fishing, having that be your business, and also that tie to conservation and the importance of your voice in conservation and the presence of fly fishing on a river, how that ties in. We use this resource for, as a fishery and we use it as a way to make a living. And we're on it every day. And so it's upon us to be stewards of this great resource and take care of it. Not just when we're out there, but when we have opportunities to step up and be a part of organizations like the Big Hole Watershed Committee and take steps to try to make this a better place because we already have a changing environment. And if we don't take steps as a group as anglers, as fishermen, as guides, as shop owners, to step up and be a part of that, we're missing an opportunity to protect this resource. And tell me about 
the watershed committee you know when did you become involved how did how did you become involved what did that initial approach look like i've been involved with the watershed committee for about three years now i had been attending meetings here and there but it became obvious that i needed to have more of an active role and have a voice and be a part of it and as one of only a couple outfitters fishermen anglers that are on there on the board there isn't a huge voice and we need to be able to share our knowledge of being on this water every day share what we see share our experiences see the trends that we're seeing because there's a lot of times that we notice things being on the river every day that somebody that's on the river once a month may not notice and being able to share that experience share that knowledge with the board and the other people i think it's important to be a part of that it's challenging because we go to these meetings and it typically is board members a handful of grad students from local universities and occasionally a few from the public but rarely do we see a lot of people from outside of the board and it's something that we'd like to see more of and i think that the fly fishing community and the guide communities is guilty as any um, they're definitely opportunity for more participation from that community and you know we're talking about the success of collaborative work but it's not sunny and roses all the time right and i think it helps for other folks who may be thinking about starting collaborative work in their area who have tried and hit challenges to hear the realistic challenges that other people have run into um, what are some of those realistic challenges well there's there's challenges and there's successes and one of the most visible successes in the last year or two is Pedro asked me if you see anything on the river let us know always talk to us communicate with us when you see things and I pointed out a bank that had been degraded and was continuing to erode and we pointed it out and it definitely took time with the foundation the landowner and everything like that but we were able to go in and secure the bank plant several thousand willows and in doing that, secure that bank for the future so that when high water comes, it doesn't wash away the soil, the topsoil, and erode more, continuing to overwiden the river. And it definitely took time, but it was a success. Now, not every suggestion turns into a project like this. Pick your battles, find the spots where you think you can do the best work and have the most impact, and focus on that and work to get that done. And from a social aspect, you know, what are some of those challenges in bringing people with different priorities together? Yeah. And maybe some, it can be, you know, overarching general things of how you found to work through those things. Not everyone is going to see eye to eye and not everybody's going to have the same priorities. And the important thing is to work together and to listen and hear what someone else is saying and hope that they're doing the same. And when we can all get together and listen what our priorities are, what their priorities are, and what the end goal for everybody is, then we can get together and have a better chance of having a common voice. Because having that common voice and having common ground is what's gonna gain successes. If we continue to argue and bicker, that wouldn't do it. One of the great things about this is we're all from different backgrounds. The ranching community, the sport group community, the outfitting and guide community. And no, we don't always see eye to eye, and we definitely have different priorities. 
but we all are here to protect the Big Hole River. And we may not have the same site path to get there, but the end goal is the same, to protect this river, to protect the fish, and make sure that it's economically viable for all of us to make a living here. And looking at this river, you know, 150 miles, that's different geographies throughout. Tell me about the importance of this approach of looking at things on a landscape scale. You know, and that's what we see with things like the committee of not just folks within a certain fence line or, you know, it's the guy up here who's doing things to, that impacts the guy here or what you guys do to, you know, give input on in guiding practices to impact years down the road. You know, just this, this concept of connectivity and looking at things on a larger scale rather than these little isolated silos. The, the Big Hole Valley's made up of many different small communities, different ranches, different people, different backgrounds, and we need to look at the river as a whole and not look at it as an individual area, not look at it as Melrose or Glen or Wise River or Wisdom. We have to look at the resource as a whole and we have to be focused as a group of residents in this valley of working together so that everything that can happen for the river happens as a group, happens as a community, and happens to benefit the resource. We all need to be working together. The bottom-up approach of everybody that's here working can only get us so far. We also have to reach out. There's only so many resources and so many dollars in this valley. It's important for us to work to try to gain buy-in from the clients that come fishing with us and get their support. And organizations that are out there that have dollars that are giving for grants for restoration work and getting their, their buy-in as well. We can only do so much and we will do a lot in this valley with this community, but without the help and the outreach from other groups, it's challenging because it's daunting what's left to be done. Eric tells me what the summer of 2021 has meant from his perspective as a guide, as well as what he witnesses amongst others in the community. What we've seen this year is one of the most challenging water years that we've seen in four years. And without question, the most challenging year I've seen in 16. We had an incredibly low snowpack. We had the driest spring and summer that we've seen in years. And what that's done is brought the river down to a level where we haven't seen it in a long, long time. Um, all but 25 miles of the river is currently closed to fishing because it's too low. We dealt with massive heat during June and July, which put the river, most of it, on hoot owl, which meant that anglers were only able to fish until two o'clock in the afternoon because the water temperature was getting so high that it was becoming lethal to the fish. It's been so challenging. I know that the ranchers have had a difficult year irrigating and several of them have held back and tried to save water to put water back in the river. A lot of the angling community was doing self-imposed hoot owls when the water got too hot, even on sections where we weren't required to do it. We were doing it. We were going out early, trying to protect the fishery. And we've seen less traffic in Melrose than I've ever seen. Uh, the bookings that we have at the shop are down anywhere from 50 to 75% compared to what we're used to in some months. It's been difficult and it's all because we don't have water. And without water, we don't have an economic backbone in this valley. 
it, it's challenging on years where we have low water like this. We have a really small fly shop and we're a rural fly shop. So it's not like we're in Bozeman or Missoula where there's a constant flood of traffic. For people to come here, they're coming here because of the fishery and the fishery needs to be in good shape for them to want to come. And we have a full staff of people that we're trying to employ and make sure that they make enough money to get through the year. And you have to understand we're only open seven months a year. So we're trying to make 12 months worth of money in seven months. And when we have a difficult year like this where we have cancellations going on and people calling to book for next year because they know that they're probably not going to have the experience they're looking for this year. And we're also trying to make sure that all of our employees and all of our guides are making enough to get through the year. It's challenging and it's stressful and we lose sleep over it. Tell me about, you know, these are trends that you see, right? Tell me about um, climate change and what that impact is for this area, for the fishery, for your business, and some of those things that you talk about with clients. It's difficult now seeing how things have changed. You know, we're seeing less snow during the winter times. We're seeing spring come earlier. We're seeing runoff happen sooner. Uh, studies are showing that we are a couple degrees hotter than we were just 20 years ago. And it's having an impact on things. The water temperature is hotter than we've seen it. And hood owl is now becoming not something that we see occasionally. It's, it's something that we're seeing almost every year. During the spawn, the water temperatures are warmer than they used to be. And we're seeing repercussions because of that. It's just a challenging thing where we have this amazing river and we're seeing how the climate's change is having a direct impact on this resource. And we don't have the cold springs and the wet springs that we used to have. And we're seeing water get up to 73, 74, 75 degrees in June and July. And those are things that we didn't used to see. The reason temperature in the river is such a big deal is the river is filled with trout and mountain whitefish and grayling. And these are cold water species. If the water gets too warm, they can die. And it's not just being killed when they get caught or caught and released. The temperature can get hot enough that they will just die because the water is too hot. We're in the mountains and this is a cold water fishery. And when the water gets too hot, it, it can be lethal for the fish. With those bigger picture elements that, you know, we're facing, why is it important more than ever to be working together? You know, I know it's not always yeah. a quicker approach. <laughs> yeah. Maybe there's less bureaucracy, but I know that's not always the case. But just in terms of why it's, it's urgent, right? It's urgent that we're coming together and just moving through things that, that create some kind of a resilience forward. We need to be working together on this river because it's the only one we have. This is the river that runs through the Big Hole Valley and all of these communities. This is the lifeblood of those communities. The anglers, the guides, the outfitters, the landowners, the irrigators, everybody needs to be concerned. And everybody needs to step up and work together because individually we have nothing. Together is the only shot we have. And if we go at it with an individual approach, we're not gonna be successful. Working together, having discussions, whether we all agree or not, we still need to have the discussions and we need to work together to make this a better place.
Thank you so much to Eric for speaking with us. You can find Sunrise Fly Shop right on the Big Hole River in Melrose, Montana, as well as online at sunriseflyshop.com and on Instagram at sunriseflyshop. Now we hear from Liz Jones, a rancher who grew up in Montana and married into the ranch life in her early 20s. 62 years later, she's still working her tail off. When I first met Liz last October, I pulled up and she was in the middle of harvesting straw, steering the massive combine across the field. As she climbed down to greet me, I saw she was petite, about a foot smaller than I, short white hair, and clearly tough as nails. We spoke the following day as the straw needed to be baled that afternoon. The expression, make hay, or in this case, straw, while the sun is shining, is very much a literal slogan for ranchers who grow their own feed. Liz spoke with me about changes she sees in her town of Wise River, her involvement in the Big Hole Watershed Committee, and respecting different values in order to work towards a common goal. The ranch is a hundred years old. It was uh, founded by Donald's uh, grandfather that came from Iowa and settled here. The community is a tight-knit community, sort of. It, it's grown a lot since, say, we were first married. There used to be a lot more ranches and uh, open space, and, and now it, there's a lot of subdividing and a lot of homes up along the byways that were never there before. And a lot of the people are summer people only, so you really don't get to know them very well. Uh, not like you used to, you knew everybody. We have a rural school here. At one time, I taught at the rural school because I was a school teacher. We had 50 students at one time, and now we're lucky to have eight to 10 students here. So uh, that's a big change in our community, I think. But the community is very supportive of uh, events we have here, like we have the weed ball here in the fall to help and raise money for the county. And that's always a big event. We do have uh, a monthly dinner put on down at the community foundation. There you do get to meet a few of the out-of-staters because in the summertime you get more people. The winters aren't as bad as they used to be, but uh, every once in a while you get one. They can be pretty severe and a lot of times we're snowed in here and, and to get up our hill to feed the cattle. Of course, you have to have the uh, four-wheel drive tractors chained, so the winters can be tough. It takes a lot of feed, a lot of hay, and uh, the summers, they vary. This was an unusual summer this year. I've never seen the drought be quite this bad since I've lived here for the 61, two years. Everybody thinks that 88 was worse drought than this year, but I do not because of the fact that this year um, we really didn't have enough irrigation water to um, get everything wet that you want to get wet for hay crops and things. So the hay was very, very short. We didn't have much. We're going to have to buy lots of hay. Everybody is, and hay is short everywhere, even people who um, have sprinkled alfalfa on that in the valley and they still don't, the crops were short, the uh, potato crops were very short this year and grain crops and everything was short from the, the drought. I mean you may have to sell some of your livestock to make it. I think uh, the river was, is the lowest I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. 
it's hard on the fish and uh, they are losing some fish and of course there isn't the food in that when the river's that low for them either and uh, so I think there's a lot of things this year things the grasses are very dry in the hills and the forests where we pasture and run cattle um, and with the fire and all the smoke was bad it was hard to dry the hay and um, not much sun to grow it even though it was really hot you know it just uh, there was a lot of elements involved all we can do is hope for a better year next year and uh, that we don't have these fires and it's pretty devastating you know and the smoke is hard on the animals and the people and the crops and everything and so it's been really tough this year. One of the main fires in the Big Hole Valley last summer, the Alder Creek Fire, was also very close to Liz's ranch and fire crews actually camped out on her property. The fire burned from early July well into September, eventually burning over 35,000 acres. This was just one of a handful of fires burning either in or next to the Big Hole Valley last summer. Uh, we had the fire camp on our land. We could see it burning and everything, but it didn't come as close to us as it did on the people on Highway 43. But uh, one night it did come a little bit close off of the Alder Creek when it went across to Stein Ridge. Um, we had to turn our sprinklers on the field and uh, some people that live in a trailer up at that end end and they had sprinklers on that house. And the fire didn't come as close to us because of one thing, the BLM, our BLM is right behind the place. And a couple years ago, they went up there and thinned the trees, had a timber sale thinned all the dead trees, a lot of it, and took a little timber sale. They uh, cut down all the tree encroachment. There was getting to be a lot of tree encroachment out in the sagebrush. And so when the fire got close to that area, it went around because that area had been managed. We had grazed it this spring, and uh, the grazing took the undergrowth off of it. It was so open there that the fire stopped next to it. It burned the timber above it and it burnt the timber all down by Lamy's and Stanchfield's very very close to their house. I mean it was right in their backyard and where we were safe we never did have to evacuate or anything but some some people did. Liz's cattle graze on both her land and public land which is very common for ranchers. Liz specifically has grazing permits with the Forest Service. In this conversation of ranchers being stewards of the land, both public lands and private lands that make up these larger ecosystems, I ask Liz what types of things she looks out for in her management and what lens she's observing the land through. You watch your private land as close as you do the forest land or vice versa. And um, when the cows are on the forest, we, we try to watch the riparian areas and uh, not stay too long in any one pasture. And if you don't concentrate large amounts of cattle in one pasture, that's hard on a pasture. If you can spread those cattle out a little bit, and we do that, you watch and you try to rotate some of your grazing in pastures and, and uh, be real careful about grazing because we are truly conservationists and stewards of the land. 
they always say the environmentalists start this, but we are really true conservation environmentalists. We're very conscious of it and we want to do something. Uh, and here we are out there trying to watch that we're taking care of the things. Liz also mentions that she is a hired range rider, which is common for ranchers, especially when they have grazing leases that are spread out. A range rider is a hired position of someone who may work for multiple neighboring ranches, but they ride out with the cattle to watch for everything from sick or injured cattle, the impact on the rangeland and if it's time for the cattle to move to a new grazing area, as well as watching for carnivores and keeping the cattle in a herd to avoid conflict with predators. Liz goes on to speak with me about her 26-year involvement with the Big Hole Watershed Committee. I've been on the Watershed Committee uh, since it started. We, uh, uh, some ranchers organized it. For a while, it was just the group of ranchers trying to figure out uh, ways maybe to protect the river a little more. Uh, slowly, we added more to the committee, some of the outside entities like the fish, uh, wildlife people and um, guides and to make other entities there so they could understand us and we could understand where they were coming from. And we had the consensus council come from Helena at first, when we first organized, and um, talked to us. And they also ran our meetings for a couple years and so that we could um, learn more about uh, consensus. I mean, we don't vote. We talk things out until we can come to a consensus. We try to have a rancher from each section, a couple ranchers from each section of the river. That means clear down the lower Twin Bridges, clear through to up in the Jackson, Wisdom Jackson area, so that um, they have a voice. You know, we've done a lot of things. I'd like to see us get some off storage if we could. Maybe someday, I mean, I know it's a federal issue and it's tough to get, but Maybe someday we'll see that. And we have done a lot of things. Like in the upper big hole, there's been a lot of uh, places where uh, they were using irrigation water going a couple, three miles to just to water cattle. And we did, we put some uh, wells there. We had the solar power there for them. And a lot of improvement projects on head gates and uh, to kind of keep every bit of water. And I think Harold Peterson in the big hole was probably one of our main type people that got um, the people in the big hole so that when we were, went on the drought program to keep that river flowing and keep so many CFS at the main bridge at Wisdom. And most of those ranchers will give up a little bit of irrigation water just to keep that river flowing like that so we're not out of a below the drought plan CFS and that. So I think it's an education thing so each entity can understand each other, that we're all in this together to use the resources wisely. What were the issues you were seeing on the river that made you guys initially come together? What were the specifics of what? Well, I think primarily, you know, we were kind of uh, all wanted to have some 
uh, off-stream storage to hold some of this water because it goes out so fast in the spring when that snow melt comes and then you don't have the water later on. You're short of irrigation water and the fishery. And people, especially after the guide services moved in here so much, they understand they have to honor our water rights because that's with the land. And so I think it was just um, kind of a matter of education for um, some of these groups that we're kind of fighting to that we should let our water go for the fish and we should do this and we should do that so I think um, that was maybe the primary reason getting people together. To give a little context as to what it would mean for a local rancher if a species in their area were listed under the Endangered Species Act, once a species is listed then land and water management in that species habitat lies under a whole extra layer of very strict regulations. So for the Arctic grayling, which is a fish species, these added regulations would mainly apply to the water in the river. And pulling water for the needed irrigation purposes of ranchers can then be considered a take against the livelihood of the Arctic grayling. So there's added incentive for local ranchers to do what they can to keep the species from being listed and be involved in that stewardship rather than having it be dictated by federal regulations. I ask Liz what those watershed committee meetings are like, with all of those dynamics together and the natural challenges that come up in that work, and ways that she's seen the committee work through those challenges. I know there's a lot of conflicts, but eventually they seem like they get worked out, and our main steering committee has done a lot going back to D.C. and, um, you know, working with our congressional people back there. And uh, I think a, a lot of things like that to kind of get things moving and getting grants. Grants are sometimes hard. And I think, of course, um, it depends to who is your uh, main director, you know, of the watershed committee as to a lot of things, how they move forward and what gets done and what, I think that's very important. I asked Liz if she has any final words to say on the topic of keeping ranchers on the land. In the midst of what the West is seeing, including in the Big Hole Valley, with ranchers under pressure to sell and rapid land use changes such as land developments. You know, there's only so much land and uh, if you don't, um, keep some of these ranches, the land will be gone, and I don't know how we'll feed the people. I don't know and understand why so many people think that we, they need to do something else with the land and something else with all the animals and stuff like that, when uh, I don't know how they're going to live, how they're <laughs> but they're going to eat. <laughs> Anything you'd like to say about the importance of local leadership? What is the importance of the people who live on the land, live within a community, to be the ones to decide what happens on that area mm -hmm. and not this top-down? Well, I think that uh, everybody needs to be uh, active in uh, roles in their community, in their county, um, so that you know what's going on 
at all levels. Like I served on the planning county planning board for 22 years. And uh, these things are important that we're active in that. And then we have no reason to complain. That's one of the main things that everybody needs to do. They need to belong to some of these organizations and, and help and put their input. It helps everybody educate one another. Thank you so much to Liz for speaking with us. You can find out more about the work of the Big Hole Watershed Committee at bhwc.org or find them on Facebook and Instagram. Also check out the previous episodes and the following two episodes, also hearing from the Big Hole Valley, including a biologist in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's Partners Program and a range writer whose work is reducing predator and livestock conflict. Check out the rest of the Life and Land Project at lifeintheland.org, where you can find the film featuring these voices from the Big Hole Valley, as well as films and podcasts from three other regions in Montana. Thank you all so much for listening. This episode was recorded on the ancestral homelands of the Salish, Shoshone, Bannock, Lemai Shoshone, Kalispell, Absalaga, Nez Perce, Northern Cheyenne, Blackfeet, and many other indigenous tribes that interacted with and stewarded these lands for thousands of years. Thank you to Peyton Butler for editing assistance on this episode. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories for Action. Learn about all of our work at storiesforaction.org. You can browse inspiring stories from others or submit your own for us to share. Thank you all for listening and for being a part of our community, where our mission is to use the power of storytelling to share human connection and advance a thriving planet for all. The entirety of the Life in the Land project is made possible with support from the Crocus Foundation, Bioregions International, the Wilberforce Foundation, World Wildlife Fund, Montana Forest Collaboration Network, the Jim Scott family, Marina Weatherly, Montana DEQ's Abandoned Mindlands Program, Montana Conservation Corps, Berg Conservancy of the Rockies, Winnet Aces, the Milton Ranch, Northern Great Plains Joint Venture, Montana Land Reliance, Joan and Cliff Montaigne, and additional support from Heart of the Rockies, Montana Watershed Coordination Council, Rancher Stewardship Alliance, Lower Clark Fork Watershed Group, Big Hole Watershed Committee, Bill Long and Billy Miller, Gary Witted, Arthur Lubis, Rodney Fry, Chris Boyer, Gary Burnett, Daniel Beal and Julia Becker, Tom Palmer, Chris King, Mannix Brothers Ranch, Ann Schrader, and Chase Hibbert. Also, a special thank you to the Common Ground Project. If you'd like to make a tax-deductible donation to support future Life in the Land work, you may do so at lifeintheland.org. We greatly appreciate the support. Thank you all so much for listening.